Hey, uh, as we get going with what we're talking about here, if you're joining us for the first time or the first time in a while, we are wrapping up a series that's leading us up to Christmas. And what we've been looking at is there's this period when Malachi, the last of the Old Testament prophets, puts down his pen. There's a period of 400 years where the prophetic voice of God goes silent. And so what we've been seeing is in our lives, a lot of times we feel like we're in seasons somewhat similar to that, where we're wondering, where's God, where's God at? Um, I'm, not, I'm praying, but I'm not hearing him. What's going on where we don't, where, we're, where the circumstances in our life don't necessarily match up with what we hold and what we believe, and we don't know how it all works out and fits together. And so these prophets, these minor prophets, and we've been saying all along, they're not minor prophets because they're unimportant. They're just minor prophets because there's some really long prophetic books like Isaiah, Jeremiah, and then there's some very short ones, and these are the, the short ones. And these prophets are giving hope and promise. And it's the promise of good news. And the first Christmas is, is introduced as what? Good news. Good news. Or we have the word gospel, right? Uh, the word gospel literally meant good story. And that's how the angels, that's how good this news was, that it was announced to people everywhere around the world as good news. And so what, what I'm hoping and praying for you here this morning is, you know, whether you grew up in church and one of your first memories is, is embracing Jesus as a, as a child like me, or whether, you, you know, you're just checking out God, church, and the Bible. My, my heart for you today is that you would feel the weight of and, and the flame of that, like, wonder about the good news of the gospel will be rekindled in your heart. Maybe if, you, if you've heard the story so many times, you're like, oh, yeah, I know the story. And for those of you that maybe haven't embraced it yet, that you would, that the, that the Holy Spirit would just show you what incredibly good news it is for you. So today we're going to look at a promise in the book of Zechariah. Now, that's where we're heading. But before we get there, I got to tell you a little embarrassing personal story. Um, and I, as I was writing, I was like, I don't want to share this story. But I went ahead and they liked it last night, and so I guess I have to share it again today. So a while ago, and I'm not going to tell you when, um, I'm not going to give you too much information, but a while ago, I came to church, and I'm like talking to somebody at church, and I start like smelling something, like B.O. Anybody remember Seinfeld? B.O., or what was it, D.B.O.? Like bad, anyway, B.O., um, so I'm like, man, they're kind of stinky, right? And then I start, I, I move on, and I'm talking to somebody else, and I'm like, man, they're kind of stinky. <laughs> and then the thought occurs to me, maybe they're not stinky. <laughs> and so I, I, you know, do the whole check, and I'm like, uh-oh, I'm stinky. And I, the, you know, the terrifying realization flashed through my head that I forgot my deodorant. You don't have, I double, I checked twice today. I doubled it up just because I knew a lot of you were going to kind of walk by me and go afterwards. <laughs> so don't do that. So I'm like, oh no. And so I actually have to, it's a good thing I live close, right? I actually have to run home and put it on. And by that time, you know, that time it's like, it's a little late. You know, because it's effective when you put it on right after the shower. But at that time, you're just trying to cover up the stink, right? 
And so I'm putting it on, and then, you know, I'm like, this isn't going to just work, and so I'm going to put it on the shirt, too, (laughs) just real quick, to help cover up. And that worked fairly well, and I made it through with, you know, nobody going. So, um, now don't judge me, because I know you've done that, too. That's a common experience to mankind. We've all forgotten our deodorant. Um, afterwards, my wife said, well, I, I, I keep it in my purse. You could have just asked me. And I'm like, oh, then I would have smelled like stinky roses, you know? <laughs> I don't think that would have been any better. So here, here's how this kind of ties in to what we're talking about. Because in humanity, universally, um, and, you know, psychologists might argue with me, but I, I, I have observed Universally in humanity, there's a universal sense of stink. Like there's something within all of us that go, you know what, something stinks, and I think maybe it's me. And let me explain that. Um, another, an author calls it a universal sense of ought. Like there's a bunch of things you know you ought to do, but you're not always so good at doing them. You ought to do these things. In fact, you have standards. Have you ever noticed that you have a bunch of standards that you hold up? In fact, you hold other people to them. You have these standards, right? And you don't even always keep your own standards very well. That's not, I mean, nobody's disagreeing with me, right? Because we all experience this. If you have kids, you know what it's like trying to discipline or teach your kids a truth of something that you also struggle with or struggled with, right? And it's like, do as I say, not as I do. And that's the struggle of a parent, isn't it? Sometimes it's hard because you're trying to teach your kid to do what's right when you know, like, yeah, I used to struggle, or I still do. And have you noticed how we project this? Like, when it comes to ourself, there's a big fancy term I was taught, uh, fundamental attribution error. And what that means is this, that when it comes to ourself, When we mess up, it's like, yeah, we're all human, you know, we all make mistakes. But when it comes to somebody else, when they violate that standard, it's you actually assume bad intent and bad motive on their part, don't you? Like when somebody cuts you off, the first thing that goes through your mind is, oh, they must have, you know, their wife must be in delivery, labor and delivery right now on the way to the hospital. It's like you dirty, rotten scumbag. Have you no Respect for human life. My children are in the car, right? But when you cut somebody off, it's like, oops. So sorry. I was doing my makeup. Have you noticed this? Like, it's this universe. It's just something common we share, right? And it's not just like everybody makes mistakes, right? We know what mistakes are. But have you ever noticed that there's a very unpopular term, and you almost never hear it in, in culture as far as like, you know, in mainstream culture today, except for sometimes, uh, hopefully frequently, when you come to church, and that is the word sin. And it's a very unpopular word. What you hear all the time is what? Mistakes. And there's a whole lot of people making a whole lot of mistakes. And if you've noticed something, many of these people actually planned their mistakes, Many of these people, maybe you've done this. You had a thought, it rolled through your mind, and you're like, no, that's not right. And then it rolled around a little bit more, and and somewhere along that way, you decided, I'm going to do that, and you did it. And you're like, well, that was a mistake. No? 
Like a mistake is like, oops, I missed the turn on the interstate. That was, I, I did something I knew was wrong and I planned to do it. What do you call that? Sin. And so I think in humanity, there's this universal sense of there's things I ought to do, but I can't seem to do them consistently. I can't seem to even consistently match my own standards. And because of this, also, I think there's a universal sense of being unclean or stinky. There's this universal thing in humanity that just feels like something's not right, something's off, something is unworthy. Something stinks inside. And here's the thing. This is exactly what you would expect if you believe like I do, if you you believe that the incredible account of Scripture from Genesis to the end is true, that God created a world of perfect beauty and humanity with unbroken relationship with him, without sin in the picture, and then humankind rebelled, and ever since then there's been a brokenness within us. And you know what the first response of humanity was after humanity, Adam and Eve sinned? It was shame. It was shame, and that is also a universal sense of something we feel. There's something universal inside of us that feels like I just don't match up, I don't cut it, and I don't want people to see. I think I can hide it. In fact, every religion around the world and there's different forms. You know, Eastern religion kind of sees it differently. Um, you know, maybe Islam sees it differently, right? But the basic fundamental of every religion is trying to deal with this problem that, of this universal sense of ought and this feeling that somehow I don't measure up to God. Or in Eastern religion, somehow I don't measure up, but if I could just become enlightened enough, basically that I, I don't care anymore, or if I can get all this under control, you know, and just sort of disconnect, it'll be okay. Or if I can just do it well enough, if I can work hard enough, if I can please God, if I can just tip the scales in my direction, this is more Western. I think most of the people in the United States, many of them have this kind of thinking. If I could just, I'm a pretty good person. I know, you know, I make some mistakes, but if I can just tip the scales a little bit in my direction, then even though I know I'm not okay, um, I'm okay enough. If I can tick off the boxes, maybe, you know, for you growing up, that meant like if I can go to church, you know, a certain amount, maybe I, I, get, I give a little bit, I can check off like I did my religious thing. And whew, I think I feel like I'm okay for a while, like God's okay with me. And I've noticed that there's been a recent tendency in culture of a philosophy, I, let's just call it the Oprah philosophy. And sorry if you're an Oprah fan. But here's Here's the basis behind this is, is basically that the truth or the answer lies within. That there's not really an objective truth out there. It really is whatever works for you, figuring out whatever works for you. Just look into your heart. You have to tap into whatever lies within. And it's all about what you can find within. And here's the issue with that is when the answer is supposed to lie within you, What do you do when you get to the end of yourself and you haven't found the answer? And I think that's why 
there's a lot of despair among so many people today is they've had this idea that somehow just look within, the answer's within you, um, that you kind of set your own truth and reality, and then they get to the end of themselves, and what they find is I come up bankrupt, and I don't have the answer. I, I don't have the answer, and now what are you left with? Because if it was supposed to be within you, and you get to the end of yourself, and you haven't found the answer, what do you have now? Despair. And I think that's why so many people in our culture, one of the reasons why they despair. It's like, you know, when you go to the doctor and you know something's wrong. And they look you over and go, no, nah, I don't think anything's wrong with you and send you home. Or go to the mechanic. You've all experienced that, right? You go to the mechanic and you, you have this noise in the car and it's been doing this funky thing and you bring it there and you start it up and they drive it and they're like, that's not doing anything. I don't think, you know, nothing's wrong. And you said, no, I, I know something's wrong. The most helpful thing they can do in that circumstance, you know, just assuming you're not like a total hypochondriac, right? The most helpful thing they can do in that circumstance is go, okay, I think that, that actually let's dig to the bottom of this. Let's figure out what's wrong. And then the most charitable, kind thing they can do is tell you, hey, you have a problem. You have an issue. You need to change course. You need to change your behavior, right? That's, that's the most kind, charitable thing a doctor can do. We need to cut it out. We need to whatever. You need to change your lifestyle. You need a new clutch before you get to Veil Pass, right? It's the most charitable thing they can do. It's far more unkind to go, eh, just look within. The answer is within. That's terribly unkind. And see, here's, here's the truth about our faith, and here's what we're going to talk about today. The unique thing about the Christian faith is it provides the hard but kind truth that there really is something fundamentally wrong with you. That's right, you suspected it, you smelt it, and you're correct. There really is something fundamentally wrong with you. What you've tried isn't working, and it isn't going to work. The problem is bigger than you. You can't fix it. But here's the amazing good news that was announced the first Christmas. There's also a hope and an answer that's bigger than you. And that lies in the person of Jesus Christ and in this message of the good news. And one of the places this is made clear to us is in Zechariah chapter 3. And if you want to turn there in your Bibles, if you have a paper Bible, go to Matthew, work a few pages to the left, and uh, you'll be there. But Zechariah was a prophet who wrote shortly after the, uh, the nation of Israel, the people in the, in the southern kingdom of Judah, came back from exile in Babylon. And they came back, they began rebuilding the temple, but for the, first gener for the generation of people that had seen the first temple that Solomon built, because it was destroyed later by the Babylonians, um, actually when they rebuilt on opening day, they just wept because they remembered the former glory of the first temple and this was just a shell. And so they're in this place, they're back in their land, they've had all these prophetic promises of, of when things would begin to go well, but it's just hard and it's depressing. 
and they want to give up, and they're not seeing the answers come. Some of you are experiencing seasons like that where it's just hard. It's just hard, right? And so Zechariah writes to encourage these people, and not just encourage them right now to keep going, but encourage them for the future, that this temple, even though it looks insignificant, and and your faithfulness, even though your obedience and your faithfulness seems insignificant right now, it is paving the way for Messiah, that Messiah will actually come and inhabit the temple. And Zechariah, if you've ever read it, it's a confusing book because it's written kind of in the same style as Revelation or Daniel, kind of an apocalyptic style. And it's like little snapshots of present and future activity of God, and they're not really in any order. And so it takes a lot of uh, digging in, and a lot of scholars argue about things. Uh, But here's a passage today that we're going to look at that is designed to bring comfort to the people of Israel as it talks about the Messiah coming. And so Zechariah 3 Verse 1 says this, says this, Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right side to accuse him. Now remember, most, much of the book of Zechariah is given in the form of visions, where the prophet would have a vision from God, a message from God, and then he'd write it down. And so this is a vision from God, this vision of this heavenly scene happening, and you have Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord. And some scholars debate, but really there's strong evidence and it's a fun bunny trail that we don't have time to go down today, but a fun bunny trail going through the Old Testament, looking all the, all the um, examples of this angel of the Lord as actually the presence of Yahweh, the one true God there. It's like a, a pre, it's called the Christophany, which is a, a, a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ, of Jesus and so that's what, exactly what we believe is going on here. It says, he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan, or literally in the Hebrew, the accuser, Hasatan. That's what you see all throughout the Old Testament, Hasatan, the accuser standing at his right side to accuse him. The Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord, or Yahweh, who has chosen Jerusalem, rebuke you. Is not this man a burning stick, or literally a firebrand, snatched from the fire? Now, Joshua was dressed in filthy clothes as he stood before the angel. So Zechariah sees this incredible vision, and it opens up with this dramatic scene of, of you know, the angel of the Lord, and Joshua and will discover shortly a whole bunch of other leaders kind of surrounding him. And Joshua, the high priest, is one of the high priests that comes back with Zerubbabel right after the exile. And so he's one of the leaders of the people. And we'll see here in just a little bit, he's actually symbolic. But here he even represents, he's representing the whole people. You see that a little later where he says, the Lord has chosen Jerusalem. This is about the whole people. And Joshua in this scripture is representing the whole people. But here's the, here's the, the sad and scary thing about him. He is covered in filthy robes. At which point in the vision, I think Zechariah probably gasped because he's the high priest. If the high priest is to appear before the Lord, you have to appear. I mean, they had ceremonial washings and you, you made yourself holy, not just you know, internally confessing your sins, but physically clean, blameless. You would come before the Lord. But here he is. 
he's covered in filthy robes. And the English is a little polite because literally in the Hebrew, this could mean covered with excrement. Poo. I, had a, I have this picture of my son. I was going to share it, then I thought better of that because I thought I need to be a better parent than that. So I'll just tell you the fun story. He was a little tyke. Maybe, uh, I don't know, maybe in his first year, maybe a, like 12 months or 14, I don't know. And he had an epic blowout. So epic, it had to be documented for, to show at his wedding. <laughs> maybe I'm not that good a parent, you know. <laughs> it was just nasty, you know. You've had, parents, you've had one of those, haven't you? Where it like comes out the back and like all the way over him and on the wall and it's just nasty, right? Just ew. <clears throat> and so um, in this circumstance, he's covered. And this is the, the scene that Zechariah is just covered, nasty, filthy, covered in, in filth. Now, here's the thing. If you've ever had a child that had like an epic blowout like that, what did I do in that situation? Did I get out the... Actually, let me clarify. I didn't do anything. My wife did. Um, yeah. What did my wife do in the situation? I'm sorry. I'm just making all you ladies hate me this morning. I'm sorry for that. I'm just like, ew, right? Um, you didn't get out like the little Kleenex and just start dabbing it off. Oh, here, let's clean you up, right? And just dab, dab, kind of wipe it, try to wipe it off. The kid, he couldn't do anything about it himself, could he? I mean, all he could do is sit there and cry. What do you do in that circumstance, in that situation? You give him a bath. Yeah, you take those filthy clothes and you rip that onesie off and either throw it in the trash, which is what I would have done, but probably my wife, you know, washed it and did that whole thing. And, and then you, you throw that kid in the bath, you wash him off, and you clean him up and put clean, fresh clothes on him. And then you can hand him off to daddy, right? <laughs> That's what you do. And, and this is the situation. And here's, what, here's when it comes to us. See, Satan's there accusing him. The accuser is there accusing him. And the accuser doesn't have to make anything up. You notice that the accuser had to make up a bunch of false accusations about Jesus. But when it comes to you and me, and when it came to this high priest, he's filthy. And when it comes to us, the, the message of the gospel, and as you read through the New Testament and the Old Testament and put it all together, is that when it comes to standing before God, that universal sense of I ought to have, but I didn't, that universal sense, that thing that you have in you sometimes that just creeps up when you find out that somebody you don't really like had a bad day or something bad happened and you kind of were happy and that thing came up in your heart and you went, ew, that's icky, that's stinky, where'd that come from? And Jesus said, it came from your heart. He says, all that icky stuff comes from your heart. And the message of the gospel starts with the hard but kind truth that there is something fundamentally broken 
within us. And that fundamental brokenness is sin. And it's icky. In fact, it's compared to filthy rags. And even when we try to do good, basically when we try to earn God's favor, when we try to fix the problem on our own, Paul refers to it as like our righteousness is filthy rags. And he was talking about like, I was the best, most religious guy when it came to, you know, pharisaical Judaism. I had it dialed in. I was the best at what I did. And all of that trying to earn it, trying to um, make it happen on my own was like filthy excrement. Yeah. Like that, when, when I go into motion to try to change myself, it would be like my, you know, the baby trying to grab that, that Kleenex and just start like, here, I'll clean it up. I'll wipe it around. And you'd be like, didn't work. You need to go on and put, home, put more deodorant on. Like, you know, take a bath in it, right? It stinks. And this is the picture that we have here. And this is the hard but kind truth that Scripture presents to us when it comes to actually the beginning of the greatest story ever told, the good news. And that is that there's something fundamentally broken within the heart of humanity and you don't have the answer and you can't fix it yourself. And when you go into gear to try to fix it yourself, what actually ends up happening is you just become self-righteous. And that's just as stinky to God. If not more so, because if you go back and actually look at the ones that Jesus had the most issue with all throughout the gospel, it was the ones who thought because they dialed it in, because they checked off some boxes, they could make themselves righteous before God. And Jesus had words for those guys, for the self-righteous, for those who said, I I, I think I've got it together. And so in verse 4, it says this, and this is the beauty of what happens. Here's, here's what needs to happen for this guy. He can't do it himself. He can't dab it, wipe it off, right? It says this, The angel said to those who were standing before him, Take off his filthy clothes. And then he said to Joshua, See, I have taken away your sin, and I will put fine garments on you. And then I said, this is cool. This next little phrase, this is like the prophet speaking in here. And so he's watching this dramatic scene unfold and he's shocked as he sees this high priest standing in filthy robes. And then the angel, you know, this whole scene is they, you know, they take these filthy clothes off and put these beautiful new linens on him so he's clean. And Zechariah can't help himself. He just bursts out, don't forget the turban. He says, put a clean turban on his head, verse five. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him while the angel of the Lord stood by. That was the turban on the head would have been what the high priest had worn that said, holy to the Lord, set apart to the Lord. It was a very important part of the way a high priest would dress. And so in this, you know, it's this dramatic scene. And he says, I have taken away your sin. And this is the heart of the gospel, is that you have a problem and you can't fix the problem. And when you try, you actually make it worse. But God steps in and says, I'm going to fix it. I'm going to make it right. 
And because of the fact that he makes it right, um, Romans says this, who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? If it is God who justifies, who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? In other words, for those whose filthy robes have been removed and whose sin has been taken away, the accuser no longer has anything that he can accuse of. Because Jesus says, I've covered it. I did the work. It's me that did it. Verse six. Then the angel of the Lord gave this charge to Joshua. This is what the Lord Almighty says. If you will walk in obedience to me and keep my requirements, then you will govern my house and have charge of my courts. And I will give you a place among these standing here. And this is key because being cleansed is always followed by living a life of obedience. There's a big theological term. It's called sanctification. And being saved naturally and necessarily results in sanctification. Sanctification is the process of the Holy Spirit working in your life to make you more like Jesus, to make you more holy. (laughs) Scriptures say, be holy. God says, be holy as I am holy. Be holy. And you can't do that on your own. You can only do that as you receive the free gift of salvation by embracing what Jesus did for you, by repenting of your sins, by giving your life to him, and then cooperating with the work of the Holy Spirit who now resides within you. Saying, yes, Lord, yes, Lord, on a daily basis. It's obedience. It's walking out obedience. And obedience Although you don't earn your own salvation. Nobody could do this. He couldn't do this for himself. Only God could move on his behalf and work on his behalf. But Paul says, now now I want you to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. James says, faith without works, faith is dead. In other words, if you've placed your faith in Jesus, it's going to result in a changed life. Not that you don't still struggle with things. Not that there's not things that still trip you up and frustrate you and you just wish you got a handle on no. But that there's a movement and a pattern in your life of moving closer to Jesus. And you know, when we think holiness, we often just think in terms of don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. And those are, those are good things not to do because those are on lists in the New Testament that Paul says people who are filled with the Holy Spirit, who walk according to the Holy Spirit, naturally stop doing this stuff and naturally start being more, what, loving, fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. Your life is naturally moving in that direction. But, you know, we, we often think on more of a negative side. I, I don't do, I don't do, I don't do. And, and I think you need to think much more on the positive side. And that is that Jesus said, a new command I give you that you, what? Love one another. And one of the primary indicators of a life that's moving closer to Jesus and this work of the Holy Spirit as you become more loving towards those in your life, more patient and kind towards those in your life, more willing to forgive those in your life, more willing to serve those in your life, even the ones who annoy you. 
And man, that's a good thing to remember in around the Christmas season, isn't it? Because some of those people are coming over, aren't they? Today, tomorrow, day after, they're coming over. Allow the Holy Spirit, as you walk with the Holy Spirit, to produce his fruit in your life when it comes to those that are otherwise hard to love. Verse 8. Now, and here's how we get to the tie-in to Christmas. Verse 8 says this. Listen, high priest Joshua, or the Hebrew version Yeshua. Listen, you and your associates seated before you, who are what? Men, symbolic of things to come. In other words, this whole vision, this whole thing that I've been telling you, this, this wordplay right now actually is happening as a symbol of things that are to come. Pay attention. Because I'm doing a work in you right now, but it's a signpost to the ultimate fulfillment of this work who will be found in a new high priest. Second half of verse eight says this, I am going to bring my servant, the branch, Oh, wait, they've heard this language. It was all over Isaiah, all over Jeremiah. The servant and the branch. This is the Davidic king. This is the Messiah. This is the one who would come. The servant in Isaiah 53, so hard to understand, but Isaiah 53, this incredible passage that so clearly, so clearly details the work of Jesus and exactly what happened in Jesus as he's crucified for our sins. That today, in, in actually in Orthodox um, circles, many circles won't even read that, even though it was found in the Dead Sea Scrolls. There's no contesting. It was originally in Isaiah, right? But it's just too close to Jesus. He says, I'm going to bring my servant, the branch. See the stone I have set in front of Joshua. There are seven eyes on that one stone. Now, this is a little weird. And I will engrave an inscription on it, says the Lord Almighty. This is a language that you also find in Revelation. Of, of basically, uh, you find this language of the stone. Isaiah, the stone the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. And then in, in Revelation, you see this image of the seven eyes. And it means this, this image is symbolic of the perfect gaze of God's spirit resting on the Messiah. And so he says, the, the, my, I'm bringing my Messiah, my servant, the branch, the cornerstone, whose gaze, the perfect gaze of God's spirit will rest on. And, and don't miss this, and I will remove the sin of this land in a single day. Let me ask you, can you think of a single day When somebody dealt with sin? When somebody worked and brought about forgiveness in a single day? You can. You can. In that day, each of you will invite your neighbor to sit under your vine and fig tree. It's a sign of God's blessing declares the Lord. And so sometime later after this amazing text, and that's the whole third chapter of Zechariah, the canon of Old Testament prophecy is closed. The, the scriptures, the Hebrew scriptures, the canon of scripture, the collection of scripture is closed. And 400 years go by. 
while the people wait for the fulfillment of all these promises. 400 years go by where the people long for the day when this assurance that their sin will be removed, taken away, when this will actually come to pass. 400 years longing for cleansing. I mean, 400 years of continuing. There's always, during this whole time, there's a faithful remnant. These guys, they rebuild the temple. They're faithful to Jesus. They're faithful to God, aren't they? They walk. There's, there's always a faithful remnant during this time. For 400 years, they, they, they come, they offer sacrifices. Sacrifices that, that they know is a response in faith to God. He said, you bring this here. But we find out later in Scripture that can't take away the sin. It's just a temporary thing. It's a symbolic, it's a signpost thing to cover the sin until the day when it will be dealt with finally, once and for all. 400 years. During this time, during this 400 years, there's this, this other group, the group that Jesus talks about a lot. And they feel unclean and they look at the history of their ancestors and so they begin to come up with a whole set of regulations far beyond just the law of God and what God said. So much to the point that when Jesus comes, this is one of the primary things he deals with is self-righteous because they create something called the, the oral tradition or the, uh, the oral law. Mountains and stacks of regulation. They think if we could just, you know, if we could just keep all these, it'll keep us from actually breaking God's law and we can, we can be holy. We can serve God better. And what began out of a good motivation ended up creating hearts that were actually far from God, which Jesus deals with. And it ended up creating a system that made it very hard for people to come to God, which Jesus deals with. 400 years go by. 400 years go by, and then one day, an angel appears to a carpenter. And I bet you know his name. What was his name? Joseph. And he was engaged to a young woman. I bet you also know her name. Mary. And in the midst of this dramatic scene of pain and betrayal because he loved her and was betrothed to her, and yet she was discovered to be pregnant, and she has this crazy story. In the midst of all that, he was a good man, and even though the law uh, allowed him to do things, he wouldn't dream of doing those things that the law allowed him to do. He didn't want to shame her publicly. He wanted to just to put her quietly away. Obviously, he wasn't going to go through with the marriage. And in the midst of that, this angel appears. The angel Gabriel. Appears to him in a dream, and here's what he said. You've heard it before. Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife. Because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son. And you are to give him the name, what? Yes. You are to give him the name Yeshua. You are to give him the name Joshua. The Lord saves. Yahweh saves. Because what? He will save his people from their sins. And this prophecy, it was prophesied hundreds of years earlier comes to pass. Another 
Yeshua, another Joshua has come. The ultimate Yeshua has come, our true high priest. Jesus, who knew no sin, was made sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. I'm gonna invite Winston to come up as we close here. Because what we celebrate, when we celebrate Christmas, is good news. And the good news does start with the hard but kind truth that there is something fundamentally broken within us, that there's a problem that's bigger than us and the answer does not lie within us. But the good news that is good news for everyone is that relationship with God is available to everyone. And and as Paul says in Ephesians, it's a free gift. The free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. As John says, that we can have cleansing from our sin. That if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. That we can have redemption in him by his grace. That's the message of the gospel. That's what we celebrate. That is good news. How is that not good news? That it's a free gift. That not only can you not earn it, he's not asking you to earn it. He's freely giving it. And because of what we have in him, the author of Hebrews puts it this way. He says, therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain, that is his body, and since we have a great priest, the ultimate high priest, the one who this prophecy was symbolic of, the great priest over the house of God, what does he invite us to do? Let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings. That we have the opportunity to run into the arms of God. And literally in another passage, it says to cry out, Abba, Father, to have relationship with him. And this is the good news. This is the story that is launched on Christmas Day. And it truly is good news for people from every tongue, every tribe, every nation. And here's the thing. For about probably 90 some, I don't know how many, most of you, this is great news. But you've heard it so many times. You've celebrated so many Christmases. And it's kind of like, uh huh. Yeah. And here's what I want to invite you to do. I want to invite you to just ponder as we, we close. And Winston's going to play or just sing, sing for a minute. I want you to ponder the, the wonder of this news. The fact that you have relationship with God. The fact that there are people all around the world wondering, am I, can I even be right with God? How do I fill this emptiness? How do, how do I feel? I know the answer isn't within me. And you, you have it. But you've lost the joy of it. And so I just want to invite you just to, to spend a minute or two praying and thanking God for the beauty and the wonder of your salvation. 
And if you've lost it, pray the prayer that the psalmist David prays. Restore unto me the joy of my salvation. Because it's wonderful news. It's incredible news. There's no better news. And for some in the room, maybe this is, as this is the gospel message that we, that we preach today. And for some, you've never embraced it. You've never said, yeah, I give my life to you, Jesus. And so here's what I want to do. We're going to all bow our heads and close our eyes right now. And I want to give us all an opportunity. And here's what I'm going to ask you to do. And this might feel a little weird to those of you that are followers of Jesus already. But I want us all to pray this prayer after me. And if you don't want to pray it, that's fine. You don't need to if you're uncomfortable. But if you're willing, I would love to have you pray this prayer out loud. And for some of you in the room, you're going to be praying this prayer for the first time. That's just, there's no magic to it. It's just a simple expression of inviting, of giving your life to Jesus and embracing what he did for you. For others in the room, I want you to pray this as a thank you. I prayed this when I was three, and for some reason it's become ho-hum. Thank you. Restore the joy of salvation to me. So would you do that with me? Just pray after me. Lord Jesus, I believe you're the son of God. I believe you died and rose again. I know I'm a sinner and I can't make it on my own. Forgive me. Cover my sin. I want life in you. I want to give my life to you and live it for you. Fill me with your Holy Spirit and let me walk with your Holy Spirit. Thank you that I am a child of God. In Jesus' name. Why don't you just take a minute and think about what Christmas really means. Think about what he did for you. Let him restore that joy of salvation in your heart. Then I'll come back up and pray for us.